Good morning, church. Our scripture reading is in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak let, the, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign was of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Thank you, Donna. Good morning, guys. My name is Randy, one of the elders here at Doxa. It's good to be back from uh, vacation. I missed you guys. Hope you missed me. Uh, either way, it's all right. Um, I know you're in good hands. I'm not worried about that. Um, I hope you've enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed our summer series on the fruit of the spirit. I hope it uh, ministered to you and encouraged you as much as it did uh, to me. Next month, Lord willing, we're going to be beginning a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount. So that's Matthew's chapter five, six, and seven. We'll be there for the 
better part of the school year. But before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to spend, our plan is to spend the next couple weeks uh, dealing with this passage in Acts 4 and then a part of chapter 5. And I think it's pretty important for us and uh, for where we are as a church and for where we are as a nation. Um, But first, let's pray before we get into it. Father, it is good to be in your house with your people. To be in your presence is the greatest joy and the greatest pleasure that a person can have. And so, Father, we know that you are in the midst of your people when we gather, but God, we ask you this morning that you would make your presence known to us. We pray that you would respond to the prayers that we have sung, that you would awaken us, that we might awaken more. God, we, I ask that you would turn this room into a sanctuary of your presence and that you would empower your word to be shared with clarity. I pray that you would speak to me, that you would speak to us. God, I pray that for each of us here that they wouldn't feel that uh, they're just listening to me talk about something, but they would, each person, each of us would feel you speaking and hear you speaking to us. Father, make us the people that you've called us to be. Help us not to dwell in apathy and lethargy. Let us not be content with the status quo. But Lord, I pray that you would arrest us with your glory and that you would fill us with your presence for the name of your son and for our eternal joy. Amen. Well, I've been listening to a podcast that I know a number of you have as well because we've talked about it. So it's called... Um, who Killed Mars Hill? Anybody listen to that podcast? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody, you can? Anybody listen to that podcast? Nobody? A couple of you guys have. All right, there you go. Um, a little participation. I know that's unusual for us, but this, I, I, can, I ask you guys a question and you can respond back if you want to. You don't have to, no pressure, but it helps me out if you do. Uh, it, the, the podcast, if you haven't listened to it, is a story about a church in Seattle that was planted and experienced uh, incredible growth. At its height, it had grown to 15,000 people in multiple campuses across multiple states. It had everything that a church today would want. It had a super uber gifted preacher, uh, by every account, an amazing communicator. It had a, a cadre, can I use cadre with you guys? A huge, a, a, whole, a whole cast of incredibly gifted musicians, creative musicians, artists. It had influence. It had an incredibly popular podcast. It had its videos were watched on YouTube and elsewhere all over the place millions of times, actually. It had incredible influence. Plus, on top of all that, it had thousands of professions of faith and baptism. It had stories of marriages and families that had been restored and people had recovered from addictions. But at the center, this is what the story that the podcast is about, that at the center of this church, it was unhealthy. The leader was prideful and domineering. 
Uh, at, at its core, the church was driven by ambition and a lust for power. And it kind of came to a head where the leader, the founding leader, was removed in an incredibly messy and embarrassing situation. And then something happened that was kind of interesting. The whole thing, 15,000 people, multiple campuses, multiple states, the whole thing just fell apart overnight. It literally, it fell apart. It doesn't exist anymore. 15,000 people, multiple campuses, multiple states, Gifted leaders, gifted musicians all over the place, and it left a crater in its wake. It didn't just fall, it left a crater. It didn't just disappear and leave all the good things that had been accomplished. It it left a crater in the lives of the people who had been involved. It left confusion and pain. I heard part of this podcast, one of the early leaders says that whenever he introduces himself to people, he says, yes, I was the first person that put a Mars Hill podcast online, I'm sorry. It left a crater, it left confusion and pain, it left people asking the question, is God real and is he good? And some of you have been through something like that. Maybe not that big and that dramatic, maybe not 15,000 people in multi-sites and multi-campuses, but maybe you have been through some amount of church hurt yourself. And church hurt cuts differently and it cuts deeper than other kinds of hurt. Church dysfunction messes you up in a weird way, in a very deep way. Some of you have been through that kind of uh, meat grinder on your own, in your own church background, in your own church situation. And I share that story about that podcast, not to bash on Mars Hill. We used to use their book on doctrine, by the way. It was the, Dale taught it in our, Dale and I both taught it in our founding members course. It's actually a pretty good book, though obvious reasons we don't use it anymore. I share it not to kick on Mars Hill, I share it because it's a, I, what I think is, it's a microcosm of American evangelicalism. We've sold our soul for success and power and we're reaping the results. Let me say that again. American evangelicalism has largely sold our soul for success and power and we are reaping the results. Judgment sometimes looks like calamity. Sometimes it looks like a church of 15,000 caving overnight or a leader being removed from office or uh, someone being deemed unfit, a founding pastor being uh, one of the largest churches in America being deemed unfit. Sometimes it looks like calamity. Sometimes judgment looks like us succeeding and getting exactly what we want, but it always looks like a lack of the presence of God in our midst. There's this story, I think it's the, maybe the most tragic, or one of the most tragic, saddest stories in all of scripture. Samson was born and he was set apart for the work of God. He was given incredible strength in order to protect the people of Israel against the Philistines. His strength is amazing strength. I don't know what, we don't know what he looked like. He could have been like, he could have looked like me or he could have looked like David Duran. I don't know. But either way, his incredible strength didn't come from just his muscles and working out. It came from the power of God. And over and over again, though, his life was full of of vice. It was full of immorality. He didn't follow what God told him to do. The only thing he really followed was that he didn't cut his hair, basically. And there's this time where he's with, best, with, with, uh, sorry, with uh, Delilah and she's, she's wooing him. She's trying to trick him one more time. You guys may know the story. You're going to look at this in Judges. But he's, 
he, she cuts his hair. He tells her the story, the secret of his strength. That he, he's given over to God and the sign of him being given over to God is not cutting his hair. And he's sleeping and she cuts his hair. And it says that she, he woke up and he was going to throw off the Philistines as he had every time before. But he didn't know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. That line, I think, is the saddest line in all of scripture. He went to throw them off as he had before but he didn't know the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. The church in America is incredibly large, it is incredibly rich, and it is incredibly influential, but like the short-haired Samson, we've lost our true power, and the question is, do we even recognize it? Or do we wake up like Samson, going to throw them off like before, but don't realize the spirit of the Lord has departed from us? Do we, the question is, do we see the dead and dying churches? You can go to most any church in America and you see churches that are closing or have closed or are dying. Since COVID has, has swept across the nation, thousands of people have left churches and have not returned. Do we see the dead and dying churches? Do we see the fallen leaders? Do we see the story after story after story of abuse of power? Do we see the hurting congregants and the volunteers and the leaders that are left in the wake of these churches that are running after success and numbers at the extent, at, at one point there's this quote that stands out because this guy in the, at Mars Hill said it, but it's the story of a lot of churches. He said, we've left tons of dead bodies in the wake of our church? Do we see Christians and even former Christians who are doubting their faith and left doubting God because of their experience in the evangelical church? Do we see the lack of the presence and the power of God? Do we recognize the crisis? That's really, I think, the question for our generation, the question for our day. Do we recognize the crisis? Do we recognize the crisis? Do we recognize what's going on? This isn't the first time the church has faced a crisis like this though. The history of God's people is that of us forgetting God and realizing where it puts us and then returning back to him. That's the, you look at the Old Testament, the history of the church since Jesus Christ, that's what happens. We have success, we forget God, we see all of a sudden it puts us into a place of calamity and crisis. We see, we realize, man, his cloud, the cloud has moved on, his presence has gone, and we cry out to him and we return back to him. That's what we're gonna be looking at the next two weeks in Acts four and five to see how does the church or how should the church respond when we face a crisis like we're in today. The young church here in, the, in Acts chapter four faced a crisis. Peter and John had healed a man in the name of Jesus and had caused an uproar. They had been arrested and they had been threatened. Now, this is the first time the early church, this young church, had faced this type of crisis. Their religious leaders, the Jewish leaders they had respected all the time, the Jewish leaders that had all the power, looked at them and said, go and no longer preach and say anything in the name of Jesus. If you do, worse than this, they have been arrested, worse than this will happen to you. It was a kind of crisis that could threaten the whole church to even, to just give up. Because who wants to live in, a, in an area where you're ostracized from everybody else around you where you look like a weirdo, 
where you look wrong and the leaders are saying, if you preach and teach anymore in his name, you will be, not only be arrested, but you'll be tried, you'll be beaten, you could even be killed. And that's ended up what happened to a lot of them. And here's what the church did though. The church, when it faced this type of crisis, it didn't say, all right, we need a more, a better leader. We need more rocking music. We need, you know what would really help? What if we had lasers and smoke? I think that might get us over the hump of this threatening, this crisis that's threatening us from outside. The people who are threatening to, to beat us and kill us and arrest us. Maybe if the guy wore some cool shoes whenever he preached, or our church didn't have a steeple on it, or our chairs were more comfortable. It sounds ridiculous when we say it out loud, doesn't it? What if, we, what if when we showed up, what if pe- families could like slide their kids into the children's ministry on a slide? What if we had greeters out in the, the, in the parking lot to greet them? What if we had really good follow-up? That's not what, it sounds silly when I say it out loud in front of you guys. But I've sat through many meetings where we're talking about those kind of things. No, they had, the church, the early church had one response to the crisis. They had one response to the threat. And it's not a, a response that gets a lot of people super excited. It wasn't a capital campaign, it wasn't a new building. They had one response and this is what they did, they prayed. In the story, that's really, they had no other plan, no other hope, they just prayed. They, and here's what they did though, they prayed an extraordinary prayer in an extraordinary way. They didn't just say, hey, will somebody get up and pray? They prayed an extraordinary prayer in an extraordinary way because it was an extraordinary moment and they recognized it. And here's the thing, before we go on, you will not pray an extraordinary prayer in an extraordinary way unless you recognize that that you are in and we are in an extraordinary time. You and I will just hear a sermon and we'll go home and everything will continue to go as it has been and you will go to your job and you will check your bank account and you will take your kids or your family out to eat or you'll watch something on Netflix and life will go on as normal and we'll be continually lulled into the sleep that we have fallen into, the lethargy. But this church, they prayed, this church, they prayed an extraordinary prayer in an extraordinary way. Verses 21 through 23 of Acts 4. And when they had further threatened them, that's the authorities, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, when that's they, the church, that is the church, when the church heard it, this is what they did. They lifted their voices together to God and said, they lifted their voices together to God. What caused them to pray a prayer like this? They felt that the the threats of the society and the religious leaders around them, they felt it pushing in on them. They were being ostracized and threatened by the most powerful people in their culture. And how were they gonna respond? 
They could respond, well, two ways or a third way. They could have crumbled under the fear and the pressure, or they could have responded with an us versus them kind of mentality. And this is a choice that every generation in the church faces. When pressure faces the church, how do we respond? When we see the changing cultural viewpoints that are around us, when we see the changing demographics, when we see the anti-Christian sentiment, what, how do we respond? How do we respond? How will our generation respond? How will this church respond? How will you respond? Do we respond by caving in? Or do we respond by fighting back? Those are the two things that we've done for so long now. Oh yeah, I see the problems in the church. I see the bad leadership, the abuse. I see the commercialization. I see the lack of holiness. I see the lack of the presence of God. I see the lack of true spiritual power. It's a thought that crosses my mind at times. At times I wish church could be different. Hey, if you're here this morning and you say, I wish church could be different, I wish doxa could be different, that's a conversation I have with myself every single day. That's a conversation Dale and I have, the elders have. I wish this would be different. I see the problems. And part of me wishes it would be different. Shouldn't the church look different? But I can't really do anything about it. Or somebody else will do something. And I just go home and distract myself with technology or activity or even family life. I just cave in. Or we fight back. I see the diminishing church in the U.S. I see the fast rise of the nuns, those who, not the Catholic nuns, but those who, those who ascribe to no particular religious belief. I see millennials and Gen Z moving away from the faith in increasing numbers. I see the fast-changing culture. And you know what it does to me? It makes me angry. Maybe you respond like this. It makes me angry. So I'm gonna protect myself. I'm gonna protect, we're gonna protect ourselves from those, those godless people out there. And we're gonna fight them to keep them from taking over our country. We're gonna pack political leaders that, that will either, even if they don't ascribe their own beliefs, will kind of, will keep us safe. We'll pack the courts We'll do whatever we have to to fight back against those godless people out there. We cave in or we fight back in an us versus them kind of mentality. But maybe there's another way to respond. Maybe it's the way the church here in Acts 4 responded. You see in verse 27 they say, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They acknowledge these are the threats, this is the situation that we're in, it's really serious, but here's the key of their prayer. The key of their prayer is they say they were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus. These threats aren't against the, in our society, aren't against the church or American civilization. That's not the problem. 
The problem isn't shifting cultural norms or political decisions. The problem is in the church that the presence of the power of Christ is not present in our church and in our life. That is the problem. The outward changes and pressures from our society shouldn't cause us to focus more on what's going on out there. Instead, it should plead with us, to, with the Lord to change and empower us because it is something, it has, it's about him. It's not about us. It's not about diminishing social and political capital of the church. It's not about diminishing numbers in our seats. It's about Jesus, about him and his glory. It shouldn't care whether there's more empty seats in the churches across America if it just has to do with people showing up at a show or not, a Jesus-branded show or not. What I should care about is the name and the renown of Jesus Christ himself that is being threatened. It's about him, not about us. And that makes this a a different kind of prayer. It's a prayer that's about Jesus. It sees threats as outside the church as against Jesus, not against us. It sees Jesus' presence and power as the answer, not our plans or our politics. You'll be forced to pray an extraordinary prayer in an extraordinary way, in an extraordinary time, unless you see that the challenges are not against you and me, they're against Jesus Christ himself. But not only that, you see the challenges, they saw it, the way they saw it, as an opportunity for God to glorify himself. God, you see these threats that are against Jesus Christ, the same people who arrayed themselves against him whenever he was on earth. And now you see it as opportunity just as as he dead on the cross was an opportunity for him to glorify himself. This challenge that is against the church is an opportunity for you to glorify your son. It's a prayer that centers on Jesus and his glory. And who, by the way, who cares about anything else? And Dave and I went up to New England to scout out the, him planting up there. And it stood out to us here in the, up there in the, in the bed rock of, of Christianity in America, the birthplace where it all started to flow in, how many churches there were. But the churches were very clearly not preaching the gospel. And the thing that he and I kept asking ourselves was, why would you even go to church? Why would you waste your time with church and Christianity if like you don't believe the Bible is true and Jesus is real? But how many of us in the South and all across America, we effectively do the same thing. We have the right beliefs, but we don't realize the presence of God has departed. Why would we continue to go about the business of church, the budgets and the gathering and the setting up of seats and chairs and all the stuff? Why would we go to community group and volunteer with kids and other things that are going on? Why would we do any of that unless the presence of God is here? This is Jesus' church after all.
When we see that this is all about Jesus, then we begin to see that we are lacking. We begin to see where we've gone wrong. We begin to see our own complicity, that we've accepted a lesser brand of Christianity. And it's then that we begin to see what we really need. Not better leaders or strategy or money, not a building. What we need alone is the presence and power of Jesus. And that causes the church to seek God in an extraordinary way. An extraordinary crisis leads to an extraordinary seeking. And I can't think of a greater crisis than for the church that calls itself the church of the living God to lack the visible and, and tangible manifestation of the presence and power of God in our midst. Now, Lord, look upon those threats they prayed and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They realized that they needed boldness. But they, it wasn't a kind of boldness that comes from guilting the people up, go out and share your faith. Wasn't the kind of boldness that comes from psyching ourselves up, but a kind of boldness that could only be that could only be understood by the presence and power of God in our lives. When we cave in or fight against culture, we're responding in fear. I'm afraid God really isn't powerful enough to take care of his church. I'm afraid he's not really powerful enough to take care of me. Or worse, we've fallen into thinking this is all about me. The church is about me and making me comfortable and making me happy. Instead of praying, God, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand. Because again, this is about Jesus, not about me. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my security. It's not about my pleasure. It's about the glory of God. And that's where I find my greatest joy if I'm a believer. They realized they needed boldness instead of fear. And they realized they needed greater power. The church recognized they needed a greater power than they had. They, this is the same church, by the way, that experienced Pentecost. Many of the people in this prayer meeting, the same ones that sat in that upper room when God poured out his spirit upon them. Many of them were ones who came in that first day when 3,000 souls were added to the church on the day one. They had experienced a great move of God. They had seen God move in powerful ways. They had experienced his power, but they knew in this present crisis they couldn't rely on past grace. The disciples and the, the church knew they were desperate for God to show up and they didn't have any other plan. They didn't have any other resource to pull from. And that can feel scary. To say, I have no other plan, I have no other resource. But it's God's way. What has to happen for, this, for us to get to this point is that our, our personal dissatisfaction has to be turned into desperation. That's really what I'm saying. You and I have to move from being dissatisfied with church dissatisfied with the way things are to desperation. To desperately crying out to God, God, you 
must move. We have no other plan. We have no other hope. We have no other way. God, you've got to come and you've got to move. We need greater power. We need boldness. We need help. There has to be an inner desperation that drives us. And that's not something I can manufacture in a sermon. It's not something you can whip up. It has to be something that the Spirit of God leads us to, but you don't have to go. You and I can go home and numb ourselves with whatever kind of entertainment and electronics and family life and business and all the busyness of life that we can that just numbs us back into that general light dissatisfaction. This is what they prayed. This is the contents of the prayer. In verse 24, it says that they started their prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They address him as sovereign, Lord. They remember, as they pray, they remember, you are the sovereign. Yes, there are threats. Yes, there are these troubles. Yes, our church is going through issues. Yes, the church in America is stumbling and falling. Yes, there is probably amount of judgment upon the church in America right now. And you see the stress and strain that we are in. You see the threats of the culture around us. You see the rising tide of secularism. You see all of that. But sovereign, Lord, you are God of all creation. You are the almighty creator God and nothing is beyond you or above you. You are above it all. You are almighty and all powerful. You hold the universe in your hands. Eternity is your dwelling. You are the God who holds it all by the word of your power. Sovereign Lord, you can do it and you are our only hope. And what better hope could there be than that? Saying our sovereign Lord is our only hope is like saying, like there's a little fire here and you bring me a fire extinguisher and say, well, this is your only hope. Sorry, that's all I've got for you. Well, it's everything I need. And everything that we need is held up in God. All the riches of glory are held up in him and he is ours through Christ Jesus. We just saying that we are truly sons and daughters of our father, our heavenly father. All of his resources are at the disposal of the church. And this isn't the first time the church has faced issues. If you know any about history, then there's a great move of God around called the Great Awakening in the 1700s. You know, there are more percentage-wise people that go to church in America today than there were before the Great Awakening. This isn't the first time we face an issue. That's when God shows up, but it's only when his people are desperate enough to say, we've given up on every other hope, and it's only you. This is the cure for our fear. It's also the cure for our pride. Our Jesus, our Jesus is the sovereign Lord. They pray. They begin by remembering God's plan and God's sovereignty and his providence and his power. And then they, they pray a commitment to God and his plan for truly in this city. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. God, this is your plan.
This is your plan to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. None of the challenges of the church faces are beyond God's hand and God's plan. And this is what they said. This is the heart of the prayer. And now, Lord, look. You are the sovereign Lord. You see the threats. And now, look. It's saying, God, take notice of what's going on. Lord, look down from heaven. And Isaiah, look down from heaven See the state that we're in, then rend the heavens and come down. This is the desperation prayer of God's people, and it has been for generations. Lord, now look, look and see the state of your church. See the state of my own heart. See what is going on, and God, come. Lord, look down, look upon their threats. See the situation they were in, and then they make a grand request. This is the grand request. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here's what this is a prayer for. It's a grand request for a visitation of God. Did you get that? Lord, Look upon their threats. Grant us to speak with all boldness, but while, who does the work? You see that? While you stretch out your hand to heal. And they are done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Yes, it happened through the hands of the apostles. It happened through the church. But it happened by God's hand and for his name and for his glory. The heart of the grand request of the people who are desperate for God is a request for a visitation from God. It's a grand request from sons and daughters of the king to come, look down, and visit us. See the threats that challenge us. See the state that we're in. Look, but look down upon us and come down to us. And you know what? That is a prayer that God heard. It's a prayer that he has heard throughout the generations that he has always responded to. Lord, look and see the state that we're in. Look down from heaven, rend the heavens, and come down. Why is it a prayer that God responds to? Because it's a prayer for his glory. It's a prayer for him to show up and do what only he can do. Now, how should this affect us? Well, I think this is the great challenge of our church, and I think this should be our great prayer. Our great prayer, I think, for our church and for the American church, but I'm not pastor of all the American church. I'm just a pastor of this church. I think the prayer for us is the great need for awakening. What we need is, David, we need uh, only answer is an outpouring of God's spirit upon us, a visitation of God, of God himself, so that he comes and he fixes our mess. And you know what? That's what he loves to do. 
It is his continual, gracious offer to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, look down from heaven and come down. God, come and visit us. I'm praying as I preach this message, God, look down from heaven, come down and visit us. Don't leave us in the state that we are in. And the question comes, will we actually seek God? Will you, will I, will we together, will we actively seek God? Will we pray an extraordinary prayer at an extraordinary time in an extraordinary way? Now that, that doesn't cause God to move. It's not our effort that somehow convinces him but it's really a sign of us coming to an end of ourselves. What we need is we need older men like Simeon. In Luke chapter two, when Jesus was coming to the temple to be presented, it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, his man, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when the parents brought him in, he prayed a prayer of thanks. He had been standing there for years praying for God to send the Messiah. Day after day, year after year, he'd been praying. We need older men like Anna. Just after that, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She was 84 and she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and with fasting and prayer night and day. We need a church with leaders and people like we see in Exodus 33. The people had displeased the Lord and God told Moses, he said, I'll send an angel before you and I'll drive out all the enemies before you. I'll give you success, only I will not go among you. And it says that in verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. And when Moses would go into the tent of meeting to pray, the people would come out and they would bow in, their, in the front of their tents and they would pray. And it says that Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tents. And finally God told him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And then Moses said, please show me your glory. We need a people more concerned with knowing God, enjoying his presence and seeing his glory than their comfort or apparent success. I pray that this is how we'll 
respond. This is what I want to be true of us as a church. This is what I want to be true of me. I want to be the church that seeks the Lord. If we have no other legacy, that should be our legacy. If we don't seek the Lord so that our families and neighbors may see him, but we're going to seek the Lord. And we say there's no other answer, there's no other hope than the presence of God, an outpouring of his spirit upon us, a visitation of God. It's an extraordinary prayer. When I, when I share this with some people, I see the look on their faces. It's like, they're like, well, where are we going to the church? It's like, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for a visitation from God. And I see the look on their face. They're like, oh, you believe in leprechauns. That's awesome. Magic. No, really, what are we going to do? That's it. I don't have any other answer. And anybody that has any other answer to, for you, for our church or for the American church, you shouldn't listen to them. Our only answer is the same answer that this early church had. To pray an extraordinary prayer at an extraordinary time in an extraordinary way. And let's let God move and leave the rest to him. Let's not play it. Let's not pretend. Let's not just go through the motions. I'm going to pray for us here and we're going to open up the time for communion. There'll be four stations, one at each corner. If you're a believer in Christ, welcome to come. Please come and partake. If you're not a believer in Christ, today is the day to become one. Today is the day to bow your knee to him. Please see somebody and have them pray with you. If you are, as you come up and partake of the bread and juice, it'll be one cup. Uh, the, the disc of bread is on the top. You peel back that layer. Under the next layer is the juice. As you partake of communion, make it a prayer. God, just as you gave Christ to me for my sins to cover me, God, I pray that this would be the anchor of my soul that I use to cry out and pray. God, in the name of Christ, glorify your son. And let's respond in desperation to a God who will answer us. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us to live out this prayer. God, that we wouldn't be under compulsion or guilt, but out of a true desperate desire to see you move in our midst. And we have no other hope we really have no other plan, and I can't think of a better place. So, Lord, we pray. You see the threats that are against the church. You see the mess that we have made of things. Lord, look down and stretch out your arm to glorify your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.